Welcome to Blue Topsy Radio. So good to be back with you guys on this uh, great almost end of November day. I'm here with Eric Cohen, my good friend, co-host. Hey, everybody. We're kind of like <laughs> post-Thanksgiving, yeah. dragging, uh, mm-hmm. post-election, but uh, we're going to talk about the breakdown of the election. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about where we are, what we're thinking, what we're hearing. And uh, I guarantee you listeners, by the end of this show, you will be optimistic because we're going to break it down, which means you're going to have homework. You're going to have work to do mm-hmm. that consists of getting your butt up and uh, not being in a state of depression because we have a runoff election mm-hmm. coming up. Eric, tell us a little bit about the runoff coming up. All right, so we have a runoff election and the first one up. Let's do it opposite of what you're hearing everywhere. Let's do it. Public Service Commissioner. That's right, Lindy Miller. Lindy Miller. Lindy Miller's been on the show. Lindy is going to a runoff. And uh, as you guys know from our past broadcast, there's five seats on the the commission statewide. And Lindy is looking to be one of five That's and right. a Democratic voice. And she's a rock star, man. Like I, we, We've had her on the show. Mm-hmm. We've said it before. The Public Service Commission is one of those down-ballot races. So pat yourself on the back right now if you went all the way down the ballot. Because we got not only Lindy Miller running for Public Service Commission, which was 11th on the ballot. That's right. We got Lindy Miller into a runoff. We have... Our good friend John Barrow in a runoff. And and let me say for what it's worth, and we'll get into Stacy's race, we'll get into talking about what happened around the state. A little bit touch on the on the national side. But let me say this. The fact that we've seen so many voter regular irregularities, whether you are a Democrat or Republican or you're independent, there was some screwed up stuff happening with our elections around the state. Um, our good friend Sarah Amico recently put out some information that she found. Uh, whether you are a conservative and you think we're bitter Democrats or you are a Democrat and you're just tired of voter suppression and all the shenanigans, we have a guy in John Barrow that can change that. Um, please listen to me very closely and carefully. John Barrow, if elected uh, through the runoff, will be able to not only put safeguards in place, uh, but he will be able to do the things that we so desperately need, which is uh, to address voting rights, to make sure that Georgia is not only a safe and a, and, a, and a great place to vote for seniors, for people of color, and for low-income families, but that we put these things in place for the importance and the furthering of our democracy in this state and around the country. Eric, I know you would agree with that in the sentiments, and, and definitely chime in because, you know, I, I am not so much upset at seeing some of the uh, the tactics that were used. What I'm more upset about is the fact that there are a lot of people that feel like we're now powerless, and we're not. Right. So we're not powerless. Guess what? Early voting's this week. You vote on Tuesday if you haven't early voted this week. We have a chance. Secretary of State. It's one of these roles that you hear about, but you're like, oh, what do they do? It's a vital role. It's one of the most important roles in state government. Not only does the Secretary of State deal with voting and all the shenanigans as we know that have gone on here. That's right. So Secretary of State covers the business division. That's right. So if you're a business, no matter what you are, they deal with licensing. If you're, you know, your hairdresser, whatever, you need a business license. If you have a business and you pay taxes, you know, you collect sales taxes. Secretary of State's office is all into that. So they they supervise elections. They maintain public records. They create some of the critical infrastructure for our small businesses. I mean, you're spot on, man. And we've got to do a better job of making sure people understand the importance. If you are 
a, a, a fiscally conservative Republican and, and you want the good of your state, then look at John Barrow. I mean, this guy has a track record of doing what's right for every community and every neighborhood he's been in. Uh, you know, sit back and, and think about the decisions we want to make for the direction of our state. Uh, I'm going to be voting for John Barrow uh, bright and early next Tuesday. I'm excited to vote for him and I'm more excited about the transformative leadership that he could provide in the state of Georgia. The libertarian from the general election endorsed John. Well, that's good. So, you know, if you're a libertarian or let's say you're a Republican that doesn't like to call themselves a Republican and says you're a libertarian, hey, the libertarian wholeheartedly endorsed John. Um, let me tell you a little quick story about voting issues. So my wife went and had to get her license renewed. And the lady said, oh, would you like to add your middle name to the license? We should well, have like a warning sign for this kind of yeah, stories. Yeah, you know where it's going, right? <laughs> so Jennifer went and she, you know, got, you know, got her middle name on the license and stuff. She applied to the Secretary of State's office a couple weeks ago with the name change. As of today, so we're recording this on the 26th, the name change hasn't gone through yet on her voting record. So that means when she goes to vote, presumably later this week or Tuesday. Wow. If her license and that voter information doesn't match up, guess what? She's another one of those voters who might not have her vote counted, all because the system is so broken in the state of Georgia. We got to fix it, man. I mean, when Trump got elected, he had this, you know, farce of a commission hmm. on secretaries of state to investigate voter fraud and to do all these things to suppress the vote. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening, uh, share this with everybody you know. We need to wake up. We need to take our state and take our government and take our country back from those who would want us to go in a direction where folks that really want to vote that have lived their whole life. I remember hearing the story that Oprah gave when she was in town about a gentleman that was very old uh, that inspired her to vote. Um, and the way she told the story, uh, she said that this gentleman had been waiting to vote uh, and had been told to go from location to location, said his identification wasn't right. And this happened, you know, several years ago. But, you know, the, the, the end of the story, which was so disheartening, was that this gentleman, this African-American man in Georgia, uh, ended up not being able to vote because by the time he had gotten the runaround, mm -hmm. he was turned away because uh, once he had all his identification, uh, he was told that the poll had closed. I mean, these are things that happened during the Jim Crow era. Right. And uh, people of color and low-income families and so many Georgians and people around this country have bled, they have sweat, they've died uh, for the right to vote. Please, ladies and gentlemen, this Secretary of State race is so critical, not just for us today, not just for the future of our children, uh, but it is extremely critical for you know those that came before us and for all that they gave uh, for us to be able to enjoy the privilege and the right that we so desperately need to hold on to. If you're angry about a disenfranchised vote, if you're angry about all the corruption, and let, let's let's veer off for a second too because this is more of our keeping it 100 moment. Mm -hmm. What I hear from a lot of people of our political you know, persuasion, we keep hear, hearing Brian Kemp stole the election. And the way I like to look at it as Brian Kemp legally stole the election. So Brian Kemp... Brian Kemp played chess. He Exactly. All, everything he did was legal. So, and I realize for a lot of our folks, they don't That's like hearing That's not what they want to hear, but it's it, the truth. It's the truth. We're not talking about stealing. We're talking about tweaking things and doing everything to, to basically make it so the outcome you want is going to happen. 
And there's a lot that goes into that, man, because mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's a better way to put it. But, you know, the reality of it, Eric, is that we, we are in a time where if, if you are if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, you know, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, a lot of Democrats mm-hmm. this year uh, were on the menu, not Lucy McBath. Uh, no. Shout out to Lucy McBath, right. flipping that seat, sending Karen Handel packing. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Carolyn Bordeaux, who came closer than any Democrat in the Congressional 7th District. Um, has come in a very long time. Carolyn, if you're listening, if you're out there, uh, shout out. We got to get you on the show. But we are mm-hmm. so proud of the work you did. Uh, wish we could have done a little bit more, but we, we are very optimistic about the future of the 7th Congressional District. And it's because of this great foundation that you've laid. But let me yeah. say this, right? So uh-huh. in listening to what you're saying, Eric, I've been doing some thinking, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, I really want to push this uh, selfless, shameless uh idea to lower the voting age to 16. Uh, right now in the United States, it's 18 years old. Right. At one point it was 21. Georgia was the first state to lower it to 18. Um, and for those that don't know, the minimum voting age has been 18 ever since a constitutional amendment back in 1971 uh, for all federal elections. And in 1970, the Supreme Court had a decision on Oregon versus Mitchell, which ruled that states and municipalities can still set a lower age for state and local elections if they choose. Um, this, to me, opens up a door, man. I mean, mm-hmm. Tacoma Park, Maryland, in 2013, became the first town to lower the age to 16 in general elections. Um, you know, we need to do that. I, I, I've been traveling around the state. I've, I've heard the moaning. I've heard the complaining. I've heard some celebrating. Some people are excited about the progress the Democrats did make, and we did make progress. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at what Democrats were able to do in the House uh, to take back the House, I think that was really, really big. If you look at what we were able to do in states like Georgia, that was huge. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I think just for a point of reference, I think the, the Senate is now 47 Democratic seats, 52 Republican. The House is 233 Democratic and 200, uh, 200 Republican. Uh, we have 23 governors now in, in, in the United States and uh, that are Democrat and That's 27 big, of them that yeah. are Republican. And uh, so, you know, we, we've made some strides. We've mm-hmm. picked up. We've we've uh, done some things. We've elected more women to Congress than we have in, in recent history. And uh, man, I'm excited. But the reason why I bring up lowering the voting age is because I heard so many young people upset that their voices weren't heard. Right. I heard so many people, your children and my children's ages, mm-hmm. that were asking questions, that were engaged. Mm-hmm. I was invited to speak to a local school in Forsyth County, and they wanted to talk to me about voting rights. You know, Miss O'Malley's fifth grade class just really inspired me because yeah. they knew about Jim Crow era laws. Mm-hmm. They knew about voter suppression. I mean, these are black kids. These are white kids. These are Asian kids. These are Latino kids. I mean, these are young men and women that want to know and that are engaged. Mm-hmm. And I think that we need to seriously consider if you are out there and you're a legislator, uh, please, please hear what we're saying. Uh, lowering the voting age will not only engage millennials and other young people, uh, but it will do this nation a great service because they have ideas, they're motivated, they're excited, and I think they would have a tremendous impact on our elections. So I'm holding something in my hand. I can see it. You know what it is. We're all holding these all the time, cell phones. That's right. All right, now you have to deal with securing how, however you do it. But my goodness, when you look at how difficult it is to vote in certain states, and then you look at other states that do voting by mail, you automatically get in the mail your ballot. But my goodness, imagine if you could just vote on your phone. That's right. 
We got to yeah. find a way, man. I mean, there's too much technology out here, and there's too many things to do. So we're going to circle back around on that. Mm-hmm. But let's jump into it. Let's go from the top down. Let's look at Stacey Abrams. Um, before I even get into Stacey, man, we, we, we got some stuff to deal with, man. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got, you know, and I'm going to read the numbers to you. You know, here, here we have, uh, I believe the number is 76% of white women in Georgia voted for Brian Kemp. Uh, if we could remember... Uh, 53% of white women nationally voted for Donald Trump. Uh, 97% of black women voted for Stacey Abrams. And I want to, you know, I know there there are other races that are uh, other nationalities and races of people that are not going to be included in this, in this current list. But the reason why I want to bring this up is because so much um, is to be said about the racial factor that played a role in this. And even more surprisingly, about 12 to 15% of black men right. voted for Brian Kemp. Let's dive in that a little bit. What are you what, like? What, what are your thoughts and what we've seen? I've got some yeah. of mine, but I want to, I want to throw you uh, under right. the bridge first, man. All right. So I'll go at it first. Our first, our first episode for those who've listened to us since the beginning was Jason Carter. A lot of love to you guys. If you listen. All right. So thank you for being there all along. So when we started with Jason, if I remember his total overall vote was like 44.83%. Somewhere around there. Somewhere, somewhere there. But within those numbers, you found that Jason got 19% of white males. And I believe he got 24 or 25% of white women, somewhere in that neighborhood. What was interesting this election is that we actually saw based on the numbers that the an increase an increase of white men over to Stacy it was five to six percent somewhere in that That's neighborhood right. and then uh, white women went down a percent from Carter four years ago to Stacy. Wow, that's a fascinating dynamic. It is, and and even more fascinating. I mean, black women have been fiercely loyal that's to right. the Democratic Party. Um, and, and I think that black women don't get enough credit mm-hmm. for the work they've done to uphold the party. So I'm not even going to spend too much time on that. But I, I have a story I'll share. A good friend of mine who's in the tech industry and entrepreneur uh, had been courting me for the past three or four months and encouraging me to consider Brian Kemp. And uh, at not one point did I take that up as a consideration. Right. But the fact that this successful black male in the state of Georgia, um, who was not, I wouldn't even categorize him as a conservative, but who was seriously thinking um, beyond uh, right. this. And, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. If you're listening, you know, Eric and I tell it like it is, but I'll tell you, uh, I can't speak for white women. I think the 53% of white women that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 uh, against Hillary Clinton and the 76% of white women that voted for Brian Kemp against Stacey Abrams, uh, that's just a, a question or a, a scenario I cannot answer because I am not a white woman. Um, and I believe that uh, educated white women and low-income white women and, and, and you name it, any category of white women are entitled to the vote and the support and the direction they want to go in and what they believe. That's a whole nother conversation. But for black men, um, the conversations I've had, Eric, and you and I have had these conversations Mm -hmm. offline, uh, I I can honestly say that what I've been hearing for the most part is that most of these votes have been an economic decision. They they feel that they have been alienated in some aspects from the the Democratic Party, not on social justice issues, right. not on mm-hmm. mass incarceration, right. not on, uh, you know, trying to, to make it, you know, more, uh, have more quality and, and to have more social reform, mm-hmm. but economically, right. as it relates 
to not just jobs and the unemployment rate, but in creating wealth. Right. There are a lot of black men that are trying to tap into Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. They're trying to tap into Wall Street. Mm-hmm. They're trying to tap into all these different industries that they don't have access to. Mm-hmm. And what, is it, what does the Republican Party do? They, they, they in, it, whether you like my analogy or not, but they throw crumbs off the table that sure. make it attractive enough mm-hmm. to say, hey, you know, at least we're offering something. Right. And I am here as the chair of the 7th Congressional District as a lifelong Democrat, someone that believes in democracy and that believes in the good of our country, uh, can honestly say that the Democratic Party of Georgia and the Democratic Party in the United States has to do a better job in making sure that they're reaching out, not just on social justice issues, but economically on black men that believe in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. that, that want to create wealth for their families, that are building legacies, that want that they're philanthropists. I mean, these guys are active, they're wealthy, they're very smart, and they're not being targeted, they're not being talked to, they're not being approached, and we're not getting their vote. So then that gets to the white voters. And we have the same problem statewide. Yeah. So this gets to what we've talked about, you know, personally and what we've talked about on the air. The bottom line is our party is still Metro Atlanta inside the perimeter focused. So I'll tell the story now. We were down in Augusta for a wedding this past weekend. And it was the first time I'd ever been there. And I was struck by the fact that, you know, it, it was another city in the state that just reeked of segregation. You looked on one side of the Savannah River, these opulent mansions with these beautiful new docks and, you know, of course, the Masters plays down there. And then the other side, as I had told you off air, it looked like Detroit. Yeah. I mean, abandoned it's heartbreaking, you know, man. homes, buildings, hotels, factories, you name it. So you sit there and go, if I was just thinking, so talking off the top of my head, if I'm a white voter and I'm a poor white voter and I'm... In rural Georgia, I sit there and go, well, the Democratic Party, I hear all the social issue stuff, but I don't hear how they're going to help me economically. Our towns, our whole state is littered with towns, small and big, where they were factory towns or whatever, and they've been left behind. And they haven't been rejuvenated, and you have this small concentration of wealth in these towns, and then you just have abject poverty. Mm -hmm. I mean, just... Wretched poverty. The truth of the matter is, which we know, and our good friend Sarah Miko would talk about, how these areas, the doctors, the healthcare, mm-hmm. it's all been stripped away under the Republicans. But what's being sold to those folks is something different. And for African American men, I see that as well. Yeah. If you're sitting there in an area that has just been poverty laden forever, Selma, Baltimore, Detroit, I mean, you name right. it. <laughs> so you sit there and go, I, I love that the Democrats are for these social things, but economically, where I live is a nightmare. It was a nightmare for people before me, and as far as I can see into the future, it's going to remain the same. And I can say this just on a personal level. I'm very fortunate to have done well, you know, and, and I think my wife and I are a part of that group of, of black folks in America that have worked really hard, uh, mm-hmm. went to school, and, and have tried... Uh, damn near as hard as we could to provide the best life for our children. But it does concern me when you look at it because let's be honest, um, whether we like to agree with it or not, like I said, Eric and I tell it how it is, you know, there are a lot of things I didn't like about Governor Nathan Deal, but on criminal justice reform, on ban the box, on some areas that he dealt with incarceration, 
And, uh, you know, I, I have to say he, he didn't do a bad job. You know, I wish that Democrats took more of a lead in some of those areas. But here's the reality from what I've read. Black men voted for Trump. At, I mean, for Kemp at a higher rate than black women. And here's what the, the exiting poll says. According to exit polling, a data point that drew uh, uh, that drew rebuke on most social media. In other words, just to put this in perspective for everybody listening, the reality is 12 to 15 percent of black men voted for Brian Kemp. Right. But a lot of people didn't believe it. A lot of people didn't want to accept that that's a reality. And the reality beyond that is that Stacey Abrams was about 17,000 votes short of a runoff with Brian Kemp. Right. I know you wanted to add something real quick and I'll finish the numbers. Well, so I was going to say, on the flip, African-American women, their numbers were so strong that the total that Brian Kemp got was basically the margin of error. I mean, that's almost as close to 100% vote democratic as you could possibly you're get. right and, and, it, and it even it strikes me even more and you're absolutely right because you know exit polling provided by not only cnn but by the associated press both shows that i mean these are exit polling information the numbers uh you know are are, are similar to the double digit level of support that trump got amongst black men in 2016 i mean we can go on and on and on i, I heard uh, uh, Mia Love out of Utah, yeah. you know, speaking today, and Mia Love said mm-hmm. that she was disappointed in Trump, but that her Haitian parents uh, had overwhelmingly supported Donald Trump. Uh, this is in, this is in um, you know even in the face of him calling countries like Haiti shithole nations. Right. It's in the face of how he has treated mm-hmm. uh, people of color. But the reality is, whether we like it or not, there is something Trump is or is not doing that right. is maintaining a small but relevant balance of uh, majority uh, men of color that that we're not seeing. And I think that needs to be a red flag for the party. Right, because you're sitting there going, hmm. These numbers, they could get even better for the Republicans. I mean, that's reality. I think what what our party does too often is bury our heads in the sand. So, and what I hope with this one, though, is, and I know we're going to move on to the election in a minute. We made great strides this election, statewide, Democratic-wise. But at the end of the day, again, Daniel and I will tell it to you the way it is. The end of the day, statewide, for most of the races, we still fell short. And... There's something that's going on there with our message. We're not doing something. We're not reaching those voters. Everybody who does the numbers behind the scenes knows that there has to be at least 30% of the white vote to win statewide for Democrats. That's right. We're short 6%. We're basically where we were four years ago. So as much as we've narrowed everything by engaging all these new voters... We're still stuck where we were. And we can't win by losing, right? Like, right. we can't lose a, a little bit of the Hispanic vote, a little bit of the, the black vote, a little bit. Like, the, the, those numbers mean something in, right. our, in our overall tally. And it's going to be interesting going into 2020. But I'll say this, and then we'll, we can talk a little bit about Amico and just kind of give people our, our, our perspective on some of the other races that we, mm-hmm. we want to look at. But... You know, there are three things I would suggest the Democratic Party do. Mm-hmm. The first thing is do some soul searching. We did good. We, we like I, I can honestly say that if I were to give Democrats in the state of Georgia a report card, not just looking at 
uh, Stacy and Sarah. Right. But when you look at candidates like Charlie Bailey, did they perform where we wanted them to? Of course not. We wanted a guy right. like Charlie to win. Right. You know, we, 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 we wanted, you know, a phenomenal candidate in Fred Swan running for commissioner of agriculture or Otha Thornton, who we know put forth a great plan for state school superintendent. We know Don Randolph was running for public service commission as well. We know that Janice Laws was running for commissioner mm-hmm. of insurance. We wanted all of them to win, but we got to do some soul searching. Right. We got to figure out number one, uh, we've made some mistakes. We have made progress, but we need to figure out what we have done that is that is right mm-hmm. and what we can clean up and get better at. Uh, number two, we need to master the art of listening. Um, and I mean that Democrats in this state need to do a better job of listening to what folks outside of the perimeter are saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we live outside the perimeter. We're in Forsyth County. Many would question that, that we're in the metro Atlanta region, but I can tell you that there is not that much of a remnant of Atlanta when you get to this part of the state. You know, we're in a conservative county. Right. Um, the closest uh, area to us that I would consider Atlanta would be Johns Creek. And, and right. Johns Creek is a conservative area. So, right. you know, we, we know we have work to do. We know we have uh, different things to take. But the last one is we need to pull younger voters into the fold. We spend a hell of a lot of time trying to go you know, left and then to the center. I think Stacey ran a phenomenal progressive campaign mm-hmm. unapologetically. Right. But we need to figure out what we need to do on one to motivate young voters, right. regardless of their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status. We got to engage young people. Mm-hmm. And number two, when we're engaging these young people, we need to implement their ideas. A lot of young people were motivated. And I've said this from the time I served as Bernie Sanders political director in 2016 for the state of Georgia, all the way up till now. You might not like Bernie, but Bernie did some things in 2016 that motivated a base right. of young people that, you know, I would say arguably uh, could be compared to what Obama did. Sure. Now, I'm not saying he ran a better campaign than Obama, but he had an apparatus in place that was fueled by young people that was motivated by young people, inspired, and those young people came into the fold and supported him in very overwhelming numbers. So I think we need to look at those three things as a state party and figure out what we could be doing better. Let's listen to our brothers and sisters that are in rural parts of the state, north, south, middle, and let's figure out a way for us to really hone into the message that we need to be effective to win in 2020. Uh, we don't have the, the luxury or the opportunity, Eric, to take off 2019. No, and I think that's what we have to do. One thing we have to do as a state party, go, okay, it's 20, to me, 2019. What happens? People get disengaged. We have to, just like you're saying, we have to engage with people. Like I think something like, we're talking about the state party. The state party should have essentially like an open communication from people in the public, direct feedback. I know if I go to the Georgia Democratic Party website, it's not easy to really figure out a way of who to get in touch with, you know, to give feedback, to give ideas, and then conversely to, to hear back. If you tweet them, you might get, you know, a funny or snarky thing back from them, but that's not the type of engagement that we're talking about. That's right. One thing I want to circle back around to, and I, I know it pains a lot of our folks, you got to stop attacking every Trump voter is some racist you know, inbred, whatever. You have to stop doing it. There are a lot of reasons why people have voted the way that they are. But if we're going to default to basically looking at the very worst in everybody and thinking that's why they did that, we're not going to make the progress that we have to make. I mean, that's that's the truth. It's the truth. And I think we need to understand that uh, Trump being our 
chief adversary is not going to win us the election in 2020. Uh, for us to, to focus solely on that, I, I share this with a great friend of mine in Washington that if this new Congress that is uh, uh, run and controlled by Democrats solely focuses on impeachment, we're going to miss the mark. Oh. If, if we go in there and, and we talk about using the checks and balances of Congress, if we go in there and we implement the plans and ideas that wow. Democrats are doing, if we go and promote the diversity mm-hmm. in gender and in race and in class and, 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 and everything you want to think of in right. equality, uh, if we go and we support these policies and we share these ideas, look, there's going to be there there's going to be some some infighting, right? I mean, yeah. let's just be honest. But Frederick Frederick Douglass once said that there is no progress without struggle. And I'm going to tell you, you might not like uh, the young lady Cortez, you might not be a big fan of of, of folks like uh, Ayanna Presley. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, man, uh, you know Nancy Pelosi and. The rest of the Democrats are going to have to, you know, listen and, and make some adjustments because we cannot afford to be fractured the right. way we were fractured in 2016 with the Bernie folks against the Hillary folks. And I've said this on the show before. I was adamant about some of the plans and ideas that Bernie had. And that's why I took the position to be his political director in Georgia. Right. But as soon as that Democratic primary was over and she got the nomination, I worked my butt off for Hillary Clinton because I knew that a Donald Trump presidency was not going to be the best thing and and, and the best uh, not only for our country, but for um, our image around the world. And that being said, Democrats, get your stuff together, (laughs) uh, get on your big boy pants and let's figure this thing out because we have an entire year to plan for 2020 and we're going to have a lot of candidates running for president. We're going to have a lot of folks running for Congress, and we need to continue this momentum. Let's look at what Lucy McBath did that worked. That's right. Let's keep people like John Ossoff engaged. That's Let's right. keep talking to, to, to our state party leadership. Uh, DeBose Porter, that's that's our chair for the Democratic Party of Georgia. Let's keep on sharing ideas on until the next step is taken. But, you know, we've got work to do, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a lot of work to do, and... You know, we, we just can't afford to take a day off. And, you know, just a, another plug, you know, on my website, DanielBlackman.com, <laughs> you know, I wrote a blog that you looked at. And, you know, I talk about the day after tomorrow. And the day after uh, November 6th was the first day for us to begin to go towards 2020. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that, Eric, you know, I, the first person I thought about was you because I know what we're trying to accomplish here at Blue Topsy. Right. Um, we're having fun with the show. Uh, we're having a good time. We're, we're picking up a lot of momentum. But at the end of the day, Eric and I's sole purpose in doing this was to create a conversation and to engage and to use dialogue as a means of voter engagement and making you feel like your voice matters and your issue matters. And that's what we're here for. What we want to do is get people out of their echo chambers. We want to tell people downtown you know what, we get that you're in the liberal bastion that we aren't in 30 miles up the road, but that's not the reality of the state. We want people in South Georgia to realize that there are people that are there listening to you and that things are different around the state. We have to get people engaged. I want to go back to something about Kemp Okay. that I find to be fascinating. So there was an article that came out a few weeks ago. While the Abrams campaign was laser-focused on Metro Atlanta and particularly inside the perimeter with a lot of events and door knocking and everything. Over several weeks, basically from Macon down south, the Kemp campaign hit 130,000 households. Wow. And what were they doing? They were engaging with voters. 
So I realize some of our folks will say like, well, they, they don't like us. Why would we do that? But if you're not there to present ideas, how do you know? And proof positive is our good friend, Josh McCall That's in the 9th right. District. That's right. So Josh ran a third we love most, you, Josh. That's right. Third most conservative district in the country. Josh knew that it was a way uphill battle. But guess what? He ended up with thousands, thousands of more votes than any Democrat had in years in that district because he went and engaged voters. It wasn't just by happenstance that it happened. And we, and we want Josh to stay out there, man. Josh right. is a phenomenal guy, mm-hmm. a, a phenomenal candidate. And Josh, we're with you. Uh, stay out there, man. It's Josh, Sarah, you know, everybody that ran, you know, you, you did you did us proud. Uh, you made us proud. Even if you didn't win, you made us proud. Now, I want to end by doing something. I want to do a flash run. I want us to just go down from the governor's race all the way down to the, you know, public service commission. Just in, in, in one word or one quick statement in our last two minutes, let me know one thing you learned from it. I'll start off with the governor's race, and then you chime in. Uh, just one quick sentence. Governor's race, I will say uh, that race taught me that we need to do a better job of protecting the vote. Man, now you've stumped me because that seems to be what it's all about. Yeah, that governor's race, no matter what we say about it, it showed that Democrats, it's not just about registering people to vote, but voter education is critical. Secretary of State. Uh, well, that goes hand in hand because we know that if the if voter suppression exists and if it is out there and it's the reality it, is that it affected us, then we need to make sure John Barrow, who is in a runoff uh, for December 4th, please go out and vote for John right. Barrow. We need him in there. And thank you to uh, Smith Duvall, who's a libertarian candidate that, that endorsed John right. Barrow. Uh, what would you say about our good friend Fred Swan? What did you learn from the commissioner of agriculture race? Uh, simple. Environment versus corporate. There we go. I like it. I like it, man. State school superintendent, what I learned from that race was that we've got to do a better job in engaging folks because uh, mm-hmm. we've got to reform our public education system. We've got to give our, chan- our children a better chance to compete. And uh, we need messages that are going to resonate beyond uh, pointing at one side or the other. Lieutenant Governor, we've touched on that. Sarah Miko is a rock star. That's right. uh, we love what she was able to do. She brought more light and attention to the Lieutenant Governor race than any candidate in recent history. What did you learn about Attorney General race, Charlie Bailey? Man, Charlie Bailey just has, God, great ideas. And, and the difference between somebody who actually was a prosecutor and actually practiced law versus somebody who really didn't do that. And the fact that our sitting attorney general basically hasn't been doing much of any law-related stuff is beyond a joke. Beyond me, man. Mm -hmm. All right, last four races real quickly. Janice Laws, uh, Commissioner of Insurance. I so wish this sister won. I loved her Mm -hmm. ideas about making insurance uh, more competitive in our state. Uh, What I learned from that race more than anything else is that we need to make sure that we're highlighting exactly what they do because the number one thing I heard about this race is what What? does an insurance commissioner do? We've got to do a better job with that. Public Service Commission, Lindy Miller, like John Barrow, is in a runoff. We've got to get Lindy elected as a former candidate for the Public Service Commission. We have a nuclear project that is years behind schedule and billions over budget. Uh, it's not just that you know uh, senior citizens on a fixed income shouldn't have to choose between their light bill That's and right. their medication. Uh, poor families, a part of the 1.9 million families that live below or at the poverty line, shouldn't have to worry about their heat working in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. So Lindy Miller and Don Randolph, thank you. 
We got to get Lindy elected, but Don Randolph, you did us proud. Thank you for running in District 5. And I'll let you close with the last word, Eric, on Commissioner of Labor, our friend Richard Keatley. What did we learn about that race? Apprenticeships. He it. wanted to have a program where you had up to 23, 25,000 people get into apprenticeships so it meant, you know what, if you weren't going on a college track, you could have a solid, excellent, middle-income career. I love it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Daniel Blackman. I'm Eric Cohen. And we appreciate you for tuning in to Blue Topsy. We'll be back with some amazing guests to close out this year. But between now and the next time we speak, December 4th, runoff election, John Barrow, Lindy Miller, please go out and vote. Support Blue Topsy. Eric, tell them how they can follow us. At Blue Topsy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and BlueTopsy.com. Thank you all so much. God bless you and good night. I will see you next time.